I'm Gary Kendall. I'm a bassist. I'm a blues musician, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues. I looked it up and you were actually on, we actually did an interview like seven years ago, which boggles my mind. And so if anybody wants to know about how Gary came to Toronto and, and became a musician, he is on episode 63 A and B. <laughs> so check that out. It was a long story. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're picking it up from a certain point. Yeah. Um, so we, we've talked about you coming down to Toronto, becoming a musician, joining different bands, doing different things, joining Downchild, leaving Downchild, coming back to Downchild. Um, let's start from that point. What was it like coming back to Downchild once you had left the band? Coming back was 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 great. It was it was a challenge because Donnie Walsh was the only person in the band from the previous time I'd had with Downchild. And the band was all new, but I knew everybody in the band, you know, Chuck Jackson, Pat Carey, Michael Fonfara, uh, Tyler Burgess was uh, playing drums in the band at that time, and of course Donnie. Um, the repertoire, other than um, the big three that we call, uh, Everything I Need Almost, I Got Everything I Need Almost, Shotgun Blues, and Flip Flop and Fly, the repertoire was pretty much all different it was all new songs. So that was great. And I like those guys, you know, that, that group of musicians who are all still part of my life and career to this day. I'd known them all. Um, I, not well at that time. I had, because I hadn't, other than Tyler Burgess, I, I hadn't really done a lot of work with the rest of the guys. And um, the first, my, how I got back in was the bass player that I replaced um, Gary Latimer, he started subbing out to me. And subbing out is not something that happens very often in Downchild. Uh, it's usually the same guys on stage every show. So that was a little strange, but I had done a few shows with them. Sorry, was that a reflection of the time or a reflection of the band? Because subbing out is something that happens a lot now. Yeah, it's Downchild. I mean, it's a great gig, so... Right. There's not very, you know, why would you want to sub out of a great gig? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and these days, if somebody isn't there, it's strange. Right. It has to be the same guys, you know, it, with that band. It's not that kind, It's not a band you sub in and sub out of. You drop all your other gigs to play right. in Downshell. That's pretty much, that's our, everybody in there, that's our first commitment. Um, so... I was called in on a couple of occasions, dialing it back just a little bit. I'd gone to the 25th anniversary that they'd had at Grossman's Tavern for a week. Right. And I was in on one night. Hawk Walsh was there and uh, some of the older horn players. And as I left that night walking out the door, I had this thought run through my mind, what if? Because up until that night, I'd never thought about being in Downchild ever again. I'd had my three and a half years I had the Kendall Wall Band. I was doing a lot of other stuff with my life and career. I was booking clubs. You know, I had a lot going on. And I walked out the door, and I had on this, an old Downchild T-shirt that I had from those days, you know, where the sleeves were cut off, a little too small for me, you know, but I'd worn it that night. 
I walk out the door, Grossman's with that T-shirt on, and I go, what if? You know, and, geez, it was four or five months later, Gary Latimer called me, can you sub for me on a gig? So I went and did the gig, and I loved the, learned the material that they were doing at that time, and I, I thought the band was great. And the first thing that I realized that I was missing, that I hadn't paid attention to, I was missing the Downchild audience, right. the crowd, you know, the band, the crowd, all the Downchild experience. And I thought, man, you know, this is great because I booked them a couple of times at the, you know, the Black Swan and then later the Silver Dollar when I wasn't back in the band. So I, and Donnie used to guest with the Kendall Wall Band. Chuck used to guest. Pat Carey used to book the Kendall Wall Band out of a place that he booked in Mississauga called Madams. And I had a relationship with those guys still as a friend. And then so Latimer subbed out a couple of times to me, and then they were going down. Not, the whole band wasn't going, but I, some of them were going down to Florida because in those days, Donnie used to spend the winters in Florida. He didn't have enough going on down there to bring down the whole band. So he was bringing down uh, Chuck and Pat and they were hiring some Florida musicians to make a southern version of Downchild. Right. So they were down in Florida doing some work and Pat called me uh, and he said, uh, uh, Latimer, after our gig on New Year's Eve, he said, Latimer, quit, move to Calgary, didn't tell us, gone. When we come back, can you sub for us? We'll be back uh, sometime in February. Can you sub for us until we find a new bass player? I said, sure. And in the meantime, I had some time to think about it, so I realized where I was going at that time, I didn't have a band that was really happening. I was booking the Silver Dollar Room, but I really wanted to be in a band that was, you know, going somewhere. So I thought it over and I thought, yeah, you know, when uh, they come back, I think I'll tell Donnie that I can do this again. And they came back and whatever gig I had, the first gig I was on with them, I said to Donnie, you know, I think I've mentioned this before to you. I said, you know, I can do this again. Don't we have a problem? Because <laughs> there was a problem with the whole band when I left right, right. after my first time around. And I said, no, we don't have a problem. Okay. <laughs> And I've been back ever since. <laughs> um, what was it about the 25th anniversary that you thought, what if? Well, just a vibe, you know. The, the, the place was overflowing with people and uh, and just downchild. Right. You know, like we got to go, go back, and I probably mentioned in our earlier interviews that I started out as being a fan. They're my favorite band. You know, for years, long, and it was always something that I thought, well, oh, man, would I ever love to be in that band? And I couldn't in the beginning because their bass player, Jim Milne, was one of my very close friends and a really good mentor, musician exchange kind of person of changing ideas of what you do as a bass player. You know, we used to have great talks about the music. We we communicated on a lot of levels and all of the guys in the band over the years, a lot of them were my friends, you know. Um, it, it's just a, the music that Donnie Walsh has put together over the years. If you're a blues musician, it's just great music to play. Mm -hmm. And that crowd, the crowd that comes out to see Downshell, it's like, you know, they've, 
stayed with the band all these years. You know, there's some. It always amazes me. We'll play playing a show somewhere, and unfortunately, with the pandemic, we don't go out <clears throat> after the show to the CD table anymore. Although sometimes Chuck and I slip out. We're not supposed to, you know. But we go out into the lobby or whatever just to talk to people. But we used to go out and sit at the table and sign and do all that. And we might be getting back into that again soon, you know, now that we can do that again. Mm-hmm. But I, it always amazed me when people would come up to the, the, the table to, to sign a CD or a poster and say, you guys are great. This is the first time I've ever seen you. <laughs> what? <laughs> Thank you. But what do you mean? <laughs> You've never seen us before. You're our age. <laughs> But you know, it's it's just fantastic. Um, you mentioned about booking clubs and booking the Black Swan and also uh, the Silver Dollar. How did you get into that? Well, I always in my first go around with Downshelf. A lot of times when we'd be doing a show and we'd finish early, we'd go to the Cameo Lounge in the Isabella where the Cameo Blues Band was playing. They had a house gig, right? And I always thought, man. This is great. Would I ever like to have a house gig somewhere some sometime? You know, like this packed little club, great band. So, you know, 83, I guess it was. I'd left down child. I was scuffling around. I didn't know whether my career was going to kick off again or not. I thought, geez, maybe it's over. You know, I've been in, you know, the best band in the world for me to be in. And now I'm not anymore. Um, what am I going to do? Uh, the Black Swan was there. I knew the guys that ran the place. They'd been at the Elma Combo. I knew them from there. They wanted to start a Saturday afternoon jam, as they called it. They called me. I didn't have a band. So I put a band together with Cash Wall, another former Downchild guy, and a couple of guys that were, were just happened to be people I was seeing a lot, Richard Smythe on guitar and Cadillac Eddie bought at Bob Adams on harp and we started doing we didn't call it a jam because we didn't want to be like you know the amateur moving targets for every wannabe in the city so we called it a blues matinee but we would run into other people musicians we knew and we'd invite them so we could try to have some sort of control over who we had to come and play well it started off it took a while the ownership of the club changed. The guys I knew that original managers, they left. The new owners came in. They kept me there. They renovated the second floor. They allowed me to turn it into a blues club. You know, I started putting up blues posters and photos all around the room and making up mixtapes so they only played blues music between sets. And, I, you know, I turned it into a room that I'd seen from my touring around Canada and the USA, a real blues club. And I was doing my matinee, and it stunk for a while. You know, we weren't getting any people out, and then they let me have special guests, and that bumped it up a little. And then the Alberts Hall folks allowed me to book their artists as our special guests. It got next thing you know, we're back in the place, and the band's getting good. So, and I, I'm getting, if I could, just to interrupt, when you said the Alpha Halls people, at that point, a lot of out-of-town blues musicians come into town play a week or yeah. Tuesday through sun Saturday, I guess. Yeah. And then they would allow that artist to come in and play with you on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, the star of the show, you know, the you know, the leader of the band kind of would come, you know, like AC Reed or Luther Guitar Junior Johnson, you know, all of those uh, Lazy Lester. 
So what happened was uh, their booker at the time, Donna McCollum, dropped in one day. And we were doing okay by this time. We were starting to get it off the ground with local guests. Right. Um, and she said, she said, it wasn't, I, I didn't ask. She said, this is great. Maybe some of the people that uh, I'm coming in, have coming in, would like to do this. Would you be interested? Well, yeah. Got so organized that I would look at their upcoming schedule. They, she would give me the name of the booking agent who, or manager of the group. And I would set it up in advance so we could advertise in advance that we were going to have these great, you know, Mighty Joe Young and all of these, you know, Lefty Diz, all of these great guys from Chicago and, you know, Little Willie Littlefield, amazing. Uh, even some Zydeco cast like Chubby Carrier would come over, you know, uh, the, the Southern rock blues guys like Tinsley Ellis. Oh, it's fantastic. So we really took off, and our band was getting better as well. In the beginning, we were a little shaky as a band, but now we were pretty good, and we knew how to back these people up correctly. Um, and the place was, we were doing really good business, and the club owner came to me one day, and you know nothing else was happening at the Swan at the time that was any good. But they were trying to do uh, live music on the second floor, um, mostly weekend stuff, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Friday, Saturday. And the club owner came to me one day and he said, and it was also another thing that I had in the back of my mind, you know, would I ever like to have a blues club that I could book and, you know, give other blues musicians work? He said, um, would you be interested in, you know, you're doing really good on your Saturday afternoon. Would you mind, would you be interested in, in doing the bookings here? And, oh yeah. You know, and I had good relationships with people like Yvonne Matzel, and Donna McCollum and Derek Andrews, people like that who did booking, you know, I got a lot of tips from them and, and I'd observed how they went about it and I just jumped in and started booking the room and uh, played there Saturday afternoons and it was, you know, going very well. And, uh, you know, it was, it was things run a, run, a, run a course, you know, you can get to a certain point where you can only go so far with something and I was trying to, with the Swan, I was trying to bring in touring acts like Duke Robillard, uh, Sapphire Deputy Blues Woman, uh, Ronnie Earl. Um, I really wanted to move more in that direction. And they were a little resistant because it cost more money and there was more involved. You had to get hotels, you had to do this and that. They kind of wanted me, ah, just stick with the local guys, you know. And somebody came over one day or got in touch with me or whatever and said, uh, you know, <clears throat> We're turning the Silver Dollar Room into a blues club, and we need someone to book it. And we've heard you do a really good job, but you can't be interested in talking to us. Uh -oh. So I went over, and I knew the Silver Dollar from the '70s. Uh, when I'd be going down Spadina, going to the Alma Combo or Grossman, sometimes I'd drop in. It was a strip joint then in the '70s, but they had these really hip jazz musicians backing up the strippers, and their jazz musicians and friends would come and sit in. So sometimes it was a duo gig, but sometimes it'd be like five musicians, six musicians on stage. It was hard to see the dancer, <laughs> you know? And the dancers didn't care. Because uh, I talked to John T. Davis, was the leader of the band. And John T. told me that they had a, a dressing room with a piano in it, and they would go in and woodshed and work out tunes, and the girls would be fine with whatever they were going to play on the next set. So they'd go up and, and play their jazz tunes, and the strippers would dance to their jazz. So I, I love that bar, and I always thought that this would be a great blues club. And it had been kind of 
open and closed and really deteriorating over years, you know, and uh, had that great sign out front and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. And I went over and uh, it had been renovated. These guys had totally fixed it up inside. They wanted to turn it into a blues club. And they said to me, we just want American blues acts. We don't want any Canadian blues acts in here, all American. Albert's Hall at the time was sort of on the way out and Toronto needed a new premier blues club, as we used to call it. It was going on its way out because it's kind of run its course in its own way, or was there another reason for that? I think they had a great guy booking it, Randy Carlton, really good guy, but I think his hands were tied from the, 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 the owners that owned at the time, and I don't think, and again, it was changing. It had been a place where they could have blues you know, six nights a week, and now they were cutting it back to three. And yeah, you know, like the, the people change and your audience leaves and goes somewhere else or they just don't go to bars anymore. It was starting to go downhill. They weren't getting the acts, the type of acts that they had been, you know, getting. I don't know the reason for all of that. So I felt a little, Randy had always been really good to me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, using me to, to back up different artists like Philip Guy and stuff like that there. But I was, was given this opportunity and there was a group of partners in my first go round at the Silver Dollar. There was about five of them. One guy had the vision and then the other guys were the people with the money. Sorry, can I ask why they specified that it not be Canadian acts but that it be international or American acts? They didn't know much about the Canadian blues scene. And they wanted it to be as authentic as it could possibly be. And at the beginning, I said, well, you know, there are some Canadian bands that could fill this place up. No, nope. you know. So I went to work for them, and it was really difficult in the beginning because I had this one guy that I was working for, but all his partners had all these different ideas of what was going to happen. And it was very... Um, there was some money there for promotion and all of that. It was all done very well. Um, the partners were always fighting and arguing. Uh, they didn't want it to be... What they wanted to happen at that time was the basement. They wanted to turn that into a strip club with just Asian women. And um, that was going to be the money maker. And the blues bar was going to be sort of a an add-on well they couldn't get the strip club open for numerous reasons you know <clears throat> they would have had to deal with the asian mob and with bikers and they, they weren't connected on either one of those <laughs> levels so it didn't get it never got off the ground so the backers were always upset that money was going you know out the door and not coming in even though i was booking a great lineup in the very beginning it wasn't making enough money. They had anticipated a whole operation with two venues making money. So these guys were fighting and arguing all the time. And then eventually, uh, after about maybe a year or so, they ousted the guy that brought me in. What year would this be? This would be around 95. Okay. So they ousted him. <clears throat> and I, I had still had the Black Swan. I was juggling. Oh, okay. I was still booking the Swan. I was still trying to do both. So they, they ousted me. I went back to the Swan. I took the sound tech from the dollar with me and convinced the guys at the Swan that 
you got to have a sound man to make this sound better. So I, t I took Rocky with me, a woman that was doing the sound of the dollar. And uh, the guy who took Yuri Sarkowski, the guy who had the brains of the operation, the one with the vision, who had taken me in, kept saying to me, I'm going to get it back. Just be patient. About five months went by, and it floundered in the hands of the uh, partners, and Yuri got it back. So I went back in, but he had no money behind him. So now people weren't getting paid, bills weren't getting paid. Musicians always got paid. No, no bands ever got stiffed. Um, but it was very hard financially. So once again, it's going down the tubes. And Yuri calls me one day and he says, uh, I'm locked out. They've taken it away from me. I went, you're locked out? I got a bass amp in there. I guess I'd been in there backing somebody up or something, and I had an amplifier in there. He said, I said, who, who took it? Like, I got to talk to whoever is taking it over. I got to get in there and get my... He wouldn't give me any information. And I thought, Jesus, I, you know, what am I going to do? Um, at that time, I don't think I had... I might have only had one bass amp. I mean, now I got five, but then I only had one. <laughs> I needed that amp. I was, you know, trying to find out who... Is somebody taking it over? Who are the landlords? I got to get my stuff out of there, um, you know. And uh, I got a call from a guy named Dave Yarmus. He said, uh, I'm the new owner of the Silver Dollar Room. I heard that you were the only good thing there. I want to offer you a job. And I said, <clears throat> he said, oh, I'd, like you to, I'd like to meet with you. And I said, sure, I'll meet with you, but I'm taking my amp out of there first before we do anything. He said, well, I own everything that's in that building right now. I said, well, I, something in there is mine. He said, well, with the deal I got, every, uh, everything in that building I own. But come and have a meeting with me. So I go and have a meeting with him, and it's him and his brother. And his brother, Cosmic Steve, who is exactly what you would think of somebody named Cosmic Steve, <laughs> he keeps saying to Dave, let him take his amp. He's a musician. Let him take his amp. <laughs> so finally Dave goes, okay, get you can take your amp. And I said, oh, okay. We'll go. We, went, we didn't go in the club. We went around the corner to a coffee shop, had a meeting. He said, uh, you know, how long would it take you to, you know, keep bands coming in and your calendar going? I said, well, I, I haven't canceled anybody yet. <laughs> so no time at all, you know. So immediately we had like, I think, Coco Montoya, A.C. Reed. Uh, we were back in business. My amp was in a cab on the way home. And, uh, geez, I lasted with Dave for 16 years. How long did it take to establish that as a premier blues club? Like, how, how long? long does it take for you to, you know, like when you went back in, at what point did Silver Dollar become a thing? Almost immediate, because the first group that I was in, they did a really good job of launching and it was already the place where any blues fan wanted to go because they could see all of these great touring acts that right. were coming through. So it was already, when Dave Yarmus took it over, it was already in motion. And by this time, it's only one-nighters. No, and the, I was bringing the bands in usually for two, three. Oh, okay. And adding other nights to, you know, I was trying to keep the place open as often as possible. We put Danny Marks in on Monday nights because he'd uh, been at uh, Albert's Hall and that it was no longer. 
So with his Stormy Monday show, so we dropped him in on Mondays. Eventually, Wednesday became the Bluegrass Night. That wasn't my idea, but it was successful. Um, mm. Cosmic Steve came up with that idea, and you know it didn't take off right away. But eventually, that became a real good night for the club as well with bluegrass music. And for me, I like bluegrass. I used to have friends that played bluegrass and uh, roots music. You know, it, it, that worked for me. And then my shows would usually be Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and. Uh, Sometimes, uh, you know, we might be dark on the Thursday and just Friday, Saturday. But in the very beginning, I was bringing them in for like a few nights. And because uh, we had the audience at first, eventually, of course, it had to cut back to one night because the audience started to dwindle. Any reason for that? Was it a drinking thing or was it? Well, a we, had, we thing had no competition at first. And then later on, we, Healy's was competition. Uh, Hughes Room started booking the Odd Blues show. And, you know, your audience kind of ages out, whether it be aging out in years or just they age out because they've been to this place and they're looking for something new or they, they don't want to go to bars anymore, whatever. You know, we, that, we went through all of the that period where all of a sudden they can't smoke in bars anymore. You know, um, that w w was a hit for a while, so people got used to it. Then, you know, the, as the drinking and driving laws got stricter, um, with good reason, um, you know, a lot of stuff started happening. And, you know, the, group, the, the, the numbers, uh, we just, the, the crowd got older, I guess, and we didn't replace them with younger going out to the bar kind of people, you know, in, in the 80s. People that went to the blues bars were in their 30s and 40s, you know. Right. And by the 90s, those people were 40s and 50s, you know. And then as the 90s creeped along, they were getting into the 60s. They weren't going out anymore, you know. Um, you know, in the beginning, we would start our shows at 10.30 at night, you know. I remember that. Eventually, we had to bump it down to like 8.30, you know. And then they complained. <laughs> you know, hey, we don't like 8.30 on Friday night. Jeez, I was working all day. I can't make it there. And I like, Jeez, can't make anybody happy. <laughs> what did you learn from that experience of being a, a talent buyer? I learned both sides of the business. I, I learned what it takes to run a club and, and the things that a, a bar owner has to do. And I always tried to bring everything that I'd learned from playing in good clubs and try to uh, get that the club that I worked for to do the, the right thing, you know, like treat the musicians right and provide them with dinner and a rider and a dressing room and a decent hotel room and respect. Um, and I learned, you know, how hard it is to keep a bar open in Toronto, especially how difficult it is. You got the liquor control board on you all the time trying to, you know, bust you for different offenses. You know, it's ridiculous. Uh, what You go to Amer bars in, in the United States and, you know, it's just they're run properly down there up here. There's always somebody trying to fine you for something or your insurance rates are really high. It's just hard, you know, hard to find good staff. So I learned both sides of the business because I already knew my side, the, the musician side. I used to get it from the club owners a lot where they used to say, you know, you work, you, you, know, you, know, you work more for the bands than you do for us. And I'd always say, no, I'm just trying to get a fair deal for both sides, mm -hmm. which I was. Uh, you know, I, I knew that I had to make money for the club in order to keep doing what I'm doing. 
And uh, the one thing that I accomplished at the dollar was, you know, eventually there was a first group of owners that said to me, you know, only American bands. The second group, where they were a little bit more receptive when I said to them, they knew who Downchild was. They knew who Rita Shirelli was. And I would put those acts in and they would do really well. As a matter of fact, they would almost make more money for them than the touring acts because it was more expensive for the touring acts with accommodations and border fees and all of that stuff, right? Uh, then there were a few bands that were just starting to climb up that I thought, like Fathead, Carlos Dahunko, I thought by putting those guys on the same stage as Bobby Bland or Duke Robillard or any of the American acts, that kind of gave them that kind of cred, and I watched their those careers explode, you know, and they would do just as good as any touring act that I would bring in. So there's a lot of satisfaction in that. And I also had a room now. If, if somebody came to me, you know, wanted to put on a fundraiser or a benefit, I, could, I had this, a venue. Right. We could open it up for things like that, which I had always wanted to do. I'd always wanted to... Um, Whenever you get a chance to give back, do some, you know, do a good deed, you know, somebody needs money for whatever good cause. We did a lot of that at the dollar, mm -hmm. you know, and it keeps the bar open for a night, provides them with some bar sales, and it doesn't cost you anything, because usually if somebody's performing at a benefit, they're donating their time, right. so everybody comes out a winner on that, and then you get a chunk of money to turn over to whatever good cause. Now. You had so many great musicians. I mean, it's it's crazy to me. When I started documenting the blues in the early 2000s, every weekend there would be another band, usually from Chicago, coming in. And it was just endless back then. Yeah, it was beautiful. Certainly not the case anymore. No. But I, can't, uh, I can't imagine how many different bands you've worked with, but do you have any personal highlights? Bobby Bland was one. <clears throat> I brought him in twice. I, I had seen Bobby Bland as a, you know, a young fan in my 20s at the Colonial Tavern for the first time. Nice. My table was right up against the stage. I mean, the trombone was kind of right <laughs> down between me and my buddy, you know. And I, I mean, his records and stuff like that. So all of a sudden, I, and I, I, we got some financial help from a festival that was happening the first time to make it feasible to actually bring Bobby in, to hear that voice coming out of the Silver Dollar Sound System. Yeah. Oh, man. Levon Helm, another hero idol of mine, you know, bringing in Levon with his band, uh, the Barn Burners, I think they were called. His daughter Amy was with them. That was pretty good. Um, the bringing the Mississippi guys up with um, Junior Kimbrell and a few of the other guys from that whole crew of northern Mississippi. That was pretty cool. Um bringing in great Zydeco fans like uh, Nathan and Zydeco Cha-Chas. The time James Brown's band, you know, were in town f filming uh, Blues Brothers 2 or whatever, and they wanted a place to play. James didn't come, but the rumor was out, <laughs> you know, hey, James Brown's going to come too. But the band came and they were killing it, and oh, the place was packed, of course. Hubert Sumlin. Hubert was a laugh because <laughs> we got him an interview. <laughs> We got Hubert an interview on Q107 or something like that, right? <laughs> and the Stones were in town rehearsing. 
And the interviewer said to him, they knew the connection because Keith had produced a record for Hubert and I think he had bailed Hubert out of a bad contract. Mm. Like he sicked his lawyers on this bad manager and now Hubert's life was great, you know. So we get Hubert an interview and the interviewer says to Hubert, so Hubert... You think the Rolling Stones are going to drop by your show tonight? And Hubert goes, "Oh, you better wait and see." So of course, <laughs> I show up, and there's like lineups going both directions around the corner down the street because everybody thinks the Stones are going to come to see Hubert. Well, of course, anybody who's in the biz like me know that because Hubert said that on the radio, they're not coming, <laughs> right? They're not going to go anywhere where people right. have given the warning out that they're going to be there, right? Um, yeah, there were a lot of, you know, just, just really, Coco Montoya, I wasn't really big on Coco Montoya. I think I had one of his records and, uh, but I knew that he was popular and I had a chance to bring him in and I brought him in and everything changed for me on him. I realized that this guy is, you know, I'm missing something here. He's really good. The owners loved him. He's a really nice guy. Mm -hmm. And he's very easy to get along with. Really killer band. Jeff Healy would come down and sit in with them. And, you know, the place would... In those days, the word would get out that Jeff's going to a certain club in town. And all of a sudden, you had an extra 20, 30 people. Because they heard that Jeff Healy was going to be there. So him and Jeff would be, you know, trading licks on stage. And that was really cool to actually... Books like I didn't book for my own taste. I booked for the fans. I wanted to fill the club up, so I booked acts that I thought would do good business for the club and still fit the whole blues uh, format. So for something like that to bring in a band like bring in like somebody like Coco Montoya, who I you know hadn't really caught on to at the time, and then be totally knocked out, and then you know respecting him as a person because he was a great guy to work with and then really getting into his music afterwards and just seeing how good a musician he was and how he always had a really good band, really mm-hmm. good players. You know, that was very cool, you know. Um, Larry Bell was another one because I'd... And, and Carrie, too, we brought his father, brought Carrie in. Carrie... I'd already done some stuff with Kerry. Uh, you know, he used to guest at the Black Swan, and Kerry had a huge drinking problem. But then he quit drinking. And I brought him to the dollar after that, where he was now sober. And whoa, look out. You know, he was good before. Where is he now? He was fantastic to see. He was healthy. He didn't live all that long after that, you know, where he cleaned up. Right. And then bringing in his son, Lurie who I'd heard all these stories about Lurie, you know, had mental illness problems and just stuff like that. And he turned out to be just the sweetest guy and, you know, very good, you know, really a humble, mm-hmm. humble person. And the real deal blues, you know, I love that stuff. And I remember when he was leaving, you know, the night that he was going out the front door and the dolly, you know, the stairway down into the front door. I'm at the top of the stairs. Lurie's going out the bottom. He's been paid. He's going out the door. He turns around and he looks, looks at me and he goes, Hey, Gary, you bring me back here again? <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So, you know, like just 
no star time stuff at all. Just a very humble character, you know. He'd pack the place, you know. Mm -hmm. Of course, I'm going to bring you back. <laughs> and you were really good, you know. Uh, and still is. Yeah, it's amazing. And he's still out there working today. Like he, he, whatever his problems were when he was younger, he managed to get them under control, and it's fantastic to see, you know, mm -hmm. that he's carried on the legacy that his father started. That's for sure. Um, switching gears a bit, I want to talk about the Maple Blues Band. How did that band start? Um, I know it as the band that used to be the host band for the Maple Blues Awards. Yeah. But is that the reason why it started? Yeah. <clears throat> the, the Maple Blues Awards had been, had had two years in, under their belt. And at the time, I was on the board of directors of the TBS. And after year two, I had a meeting. I said, you know, the music can be a lot better at the award show. I would, had this whole vision about musical stings to bring on the presenters and the award winners and just a different feel to what had been. The music was good, but it wasn't the way I thought it should be. So essentially, I think it was Derek. Or, okay, let's see what you can do. And that's how it happened. And what was the band when you first started? Was well, it the band the, originally, the, my, so I was given the, you know, the go ahead. Okay, you put it to something together and, Let's see what you can do. Well, I said right off the bat, and, and you know, thank God for Derek Andrews, you know. He, he understands musicians, you know. He, I don't think he's ever played an instrument in his life. I could be wrong about that. But he understands. And I told him I wanted a big band. I wanted a big, versatile band that can play every style of blues there is. I have an idea here. Okay, so I think in the beginning it might have been six, seven piece. So at the very start of it all, we didn't, we weren't called the Maple Blues Band. It was just a band that I was going to put together to do the music. And by then it was decided that they were going to bring in guest artists to be part of the show. So I would be backing up the guest artists and providing the music for the show. So I had Michael Fonfara and Pat Carey. And my original plan was one would be on my right, one would be on my left on stage. But at the same time, these guys are going to be my arrangers. They're going to help me pull the music together because they're both extremely talented in that way. Um, they'll help me articulate what I'm hearing in my head. They'll ha help me make it real. And I'll change the band every year. I'll just keep them. And every year there'll be a different drummer, different guitar player, different horn players, different harmonica player, right? Well, it didn't take long before I realized that this isn't working. Every year I got to break in a whole new crew you know, so I got to a certain point um, and I just decided I'm not changing the band anymore. And at that time it was Tom Bona on drums. Of course, Pat and Fomp were still there. Al Lerman on harmonica and doubling on tenor. Chris Whiteley on trumpet, guitar, harmonica, whatever else you needed to play, Chris could handle it. And uh, Jack DeKaiser on guitar and that's that and somebody started referring to us as the maple blues awards all-stars i went oh jesus <laughs> you know <laughs> i don't like that i don't but like there was the, no name you know we didn't have a name and i didn't want to be called the all-stars of any kind so i kind of shortened that down and started referring to the band as the maple blues band and we became the maple blues band and that lineup stuck for a while I, you know, um, 
after a couple of years, Jack DeKaiser decided that he didn't want for his career to be seen as a sideman. So he, he wanted to get out of it. And that was fine with me because during the years where I was switching people around, I'd had Teddy Leonard as guitar, and I really wanted Teddy back in the band because Teddy and I have a really long history. And for me, he's the guy. He's the guitar player. Mm -hmm. He's a fabulous soloist, but Teddy also knows how to fall into the accompanist. Right. He's now never trying to upstage anybody. He's just really great. We got Teddy back in the band. And then one year, Chris Whiteley couldn't do it. So we brought in our other friend, Chris Murphy. To, he doesn't play trumpet or all those other instruments, but we brought him in to play baritone and tenor saxophone. And he proved to be a real asset to the band. He wrote out charts. He was very positive. He was helpful to me. Okay, you're staying. <laughs> yeah, Derek, <laughs> I want another guy in the band. <laughs> you know, Chris Whiteley's coming back next year. I want to keep Murphy. Okay. So then we, at that point, we became, uh, I guess we, we'd grown to like seven piece by that time. And then over time, you know, people, for different reasons, I needed to change the band. So it grew into what it is now. Al Lerman is still there, but now he's just playing harmonica. Uh, Jim Casson is in on drops. Uh, Jim had been there sort of from the beginning um, as uh, when we started to branch out with the Maple Blues Band and be part of the Maple Blues Review, Jim was Tom Bonas' sub, and we would always have him standing behind the curtain during the award show because Tom was always winning drummer. Right. So we'd have to get Jim to jump in and play the drum sting. So Jim was a natural to be the drummer. Fomp, eventually, we, Michael Fonfara, he couldn't be in the band anymore. He wasn't really holding up his end. So Lance Anderson became that guy. Uh, of course, Pat always stayed when Chris Murphy wanted to bow, or Chris Whiteley wanted out because uh, he was he, he had one ear uh, hearing damaged in one ear, and that band is the monitors for the horns are pretty loud, and it wasn't working for him anymore. Right. So Howard Moore had always been his sub, so Howard became into the band, and then eventually we. we on baritone, we brought in uh, Allison Young to replace Chris Murphy. And then the, the last edition was uh, Mike Kelly on trombone. And that is what the Maple Blues Band is today, you know. Um, and, um, you know, we've made a, made a record, a um, full record. We had a couple of tracks on an EP earlier <clears throat> with the older version of the band did those recordings. Um but yeah, and it just, you know, over the years, very early in the life of the, that band, I saw the opportunity uh, for composition. We were going to be playing instrumentals at the beginning of each half. Why play covers? You know, like that's my attitude today. If I'll play, I've been playing blues covers from, that's how I learned how to play. Right. But every chance I get, I would like to play original music. And Downchild, I play original music. A whole show every night of almost all of it is original. There might be, in Downchild's show, there might be one non-original song, right? Flip, flop, and fly. Right. <laughs> might be the only song on the show that's not original. Oh, Tell Your Mother, uh, Jimmy McCracklin tune. So we started composing. And at first, um, 
I'd get an idea for a song and I would go to Pat and Pat Carey and Michael Von Farah and they would work with me on the arrangement and, and taking my rough idea and expanding it. Make all of it. Man, the first time we did that, I was amazed at the piece of music that came out of my little idea of a bass line. Yeah, the horn should just kind of go like this. And yeah, maybe, the you know, getting those guys on, I was like, it became reality and it became really good and they had great ideas. So we composed a couple that way. And then I started thinking, because uh, we, we, we didn't compose every year because we'd play those songs once. Yeah, you yeah. know, we've got to want to play them again. So it wasn't so, uh, uh, you know, we didn't really need to write new stuff for the next year. So then I started thinking like, well, maybe I should spread this around. Like when I get these ideas, maybe I should go and write with some of the other guys in the band. So I wrote one with Chris Whiteley and Al Lerman. I wrote one with Teddy. And then as the band grew, you know, sometimes... I wouldn't, we wouldn't do a writing session. I would bring the song to a rehearsal. So whoever was in the room at the time would be a co-writer, you know, whether they contributed anything or not. And we developed, you know, a, a, a catalog of a, a dozen songs. Uh, it must be fun to play with a big band like that. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's every musician's dream, I think. Um, the rehearsals for me are almost the best part of the gig. You know, I guess it's great doing a show, but I, for the Maple Blues Awards, because I had so much prep work to do and meetings to go to, plan, you know, leading up to the awards, it took up a big chunk of my time out of every year. Just, I don't think anyone has any idea of how much time I put into the Maple Blues Awards. And I would be kind of frazzled as we were getting closer. And then I would go to the first rehearsal with the band and it would be like, yeah, that's why I do this. Hmm. I do this for this moment, to be in this room with all these people, playing this great music, and a half an hour from now, some fabulous musician is going to come in here, and we're going to back them up, and that's going to be fantastic. I get to do that. You must have backed up over a hundred people over our time, you know, with the Maple Blues Awards. So, it is something else, and it, you know, it's it's to hear those compositions come to life. Boy, it's, 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 well, that's why, why you, you know, why you do it, you know. And that album did really, really well. The Maple Blues Band album. Yeah, Let's Go. It's done really, it, it's done, you know, I, I didn't bring one in with me, but I'll make sure that I bring in a, you have a CD player? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but I guess it's frustrating because it would be difficult to tour that band. Yeah. Financially, it's uh, it it we're not going to be a band that uh, if I can do my goal right now is uh, since we left the the final Maple Blues Awards show for us was 2023. Now outside of the Maple Blues Awards, we've been to the Calgary Blues Festival in 21, mm -hmm. and last 23 in September we did a concert at the Regent Theater in Oshawa. We brought in Harrison Kennedy and Keisha Wint as our guest singers, but we mainly play our instrumental music, and they they do a couple of songs uh, each in the show. Um, and we're doing the Kitchener Blues Festival uh, coming up this August, where nice. we'll do one day on our own, just playing our instrumentals, and then the next day, uh, the group 
will be uh, cut down to a six piece and we'll back up Johnny Rawls on the oh, second nice. day. But it's, yeah, it, it's, I'm, that's what I'm working on right now is I want to take that band on the road um, and go, go into theaters and offer, you know, um, the programmers can have us come and do an evening of us playing our instrumental music. If they want to spend a little bit more money, we will bring in some guest singers. You know, in Calgary, we had Susie Vinick, um, Steve Mariner, and Johnny Max. And in the Regent, we had, as I mentioned, Harrison Kennedy and Keisha Wint. So I will continue. And I have a whole other uh, uh, concert plan that I, I'm trying to get financing for um, because you know it is a large show but I have a, a thing that I'm working on now a project called Toronto the Blues today stole that off an old blues album you know there was a, a series of albums called Chicago the Blues today yep. fantastic records right Toronto the Blues today which would be the Maple Blues band this is the you know the pipe dream that I hope to make a reality but it would be the Maple Blues band with Braithwaite and Whiteley and Jay Douglas as our guests, and Sugar Brown doing a, an acoustic set solo. And um, the whole point of that is to, I want to show the diversity within the Canadian blues community and the Toronto blues community, Bling, all, putting all of those people together. Um, you know, we have a mentorship program that we started uh, where we brought a, a Jamaican exchange student, Roshane Wright, to play at the Maple Blues Awards with us as a percussionist. So we would add him to that show because we've, we've used him. He played on our record on a couple of tracks. You know, we kept that thing going uh, outside of the award show. And just to Jay Douglas and I have had, a, you know, on one of my solo EPs, he sings on a track on that. And so we've done work together and I just want to besides using it to play our instrumental music I want to show what we can do as uh, accompanying other artists but I also want to demonstrate to the public as you know look how diverse we are you know what we have here mm -hmm. uh, in in Toronto and in, in essentially in Canada where all of these different people from different races and cultures have come together, have been brought together by this music. You know, um, we all come from different directions, uh, how we got into the music and, and all of that, but we're all there together. And, uh, you know, that's where I see taking the Maple Blues Band. I mean, uh, going on the road, we're probably going to need tour support, mm -hmm. you know, more grant writing, but... I am not going to give up, you know. If I can put the Maple Blues Band on a stage two or three times a year, I'll be happy. If it develops into being more than that, I'm okay. That'll be fantastic, you know. So I have to ask, the decision not to continue doing the Maple Blues Awards, is it because you're so busy leading up to it that, and you've done it for so many years that it was time for a change, or...? Was there another yeah, reason? I well, I did it for we. I did it for twenty four years, and I started thinking around my twentieth year that I got to turn this over to somebody else. I have to step aside. You know, you can't do something forever, right? 
and eventually you're going to, you know, get asked to leave. And I wanted to leave on my terms and do it the right way. And it all kind of fell together. You know, during the pandemic, I got into writing, I hired a grant writer and, uh, you know, got some financing to record that music from the Maple Blues Band. I'd always wanted to preserve that music. I was successful with that. And did the record, got a record deal, because part of one of the clauses in my application was that when I finished the recording, I would present it to record companies, and if nobody wanted it, I'd put it out myself. I've been putting out my own recordings for since 2004 or something like that for a long time. So I was prepared to do that myself, and I got lucky, and Cordova Bay... I, I sent it to, I think, five record companies. Um, Cordova Bay jumped on it right away. They were the first one in, and as soon as they came in, I thought, I don't, doesn't, I don't, you know, one of the, an American one got back to me and said, you know, they, they weren't really interested, but, you know, uh, they, it wasn't really what they did, you know, um, a couple of other Canadian ones did not. One of them actually said to me, I can't sell this music. <laughs> Whereas Cordova Bay, right off the bat, were like, uh, they were on it. You know, uh, the, the past president uh, and founder, uh, Michael Burke, had always been very encouraging and kind to me over the years. And his, the president that took over from Michael, uh, Jocelyn uh, Greenwood, was really, you know, she's a musician as well. They were more than positive. Like, they were just, and still, you know, are really great to work with. They hired, uh, Eric Alper was their publicist, and that whole team for that record just, I, everything is there, mm -hmm. you know. And I had the financing to make a record that I wanted to make. I mastered that thing, I don't know, four times because I had the money. You know, I wasn't happy. I'll do it again. You know, mixing, I'd mix something and I'd be like, you know, some of the songs, I mixed them a couple of times and they were perfect. And then there were some that I had to mix like four or five times. But I didn't have a clock looking down at me saying, you know, hey, wrap it up. You're running out of money. I had the money. <laughs> so I just made the record that I wanted to make. And uh, it'll stand up, I think, as long as I live. Every records that I've made in the past, like the earlier ones that I did myself, some of them I can't listen to because I, they're, they're not, they don't reach the standard that I was looking for. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Let's Go by the Maple Blues Band. There's nothing wrong with that one. Boy, I, you know, I just kept, got the right musicians, got the right uh, recording engineer. who's kind of like my co-producer, really, Else Too Young. He's, he's a gem, that guy. Uh, he's just amazing to work with. He's, I, he, he came into my life with Downchild. Mm -hmm. You know, he does Downchild's records. And um, it would be hard for me to make a record without Stu. And he's just the guy. Um, you talked about blues today. And with somebody like yourself who's, who's been around a bit, who has seen so many different blues acts when, when they used to tour, how do you view the blues today? How, how do you see that world? Um, well, there's, 
we're right now we're in the middle of a bit of controversy where there's some people that are trying to tear some stuff down but on the whole i see it as very positive i see uh new musicians coming along all the time uh you know that really are bringing something really good uh, to the table uh blue moon marquee uh from out on the west coast um getting to I guess they came to the Maple Blues Awards in this show in 2023. They were part of that show. Their whole, their act is a duo. Well, they used a couple of our horn players on their songs, but they're pretty amazing. Um, the Blackburn Brothers, who I've known for a really long time, uh, and, you know, they used to be, some of them used to be in Eugene Smith's band, you know, Hot Sauce, who I used to book at the Black Swan that we talked about. Uh, and I've gotten to know um them over the years as musicians and, and people it's, i'm very happy to see where they're going i, th I think uh, blackburn is going to be the next canadian blues band that's going to break out internationally mm -hmm. i think they've they're just they're just beginning they're going to blow up I, I can see it coming there's stuff falling in place for them that's uh you know they didn't win any Maple Blues Awards after getting a record number of nominations. I don't think that matters right now in their career. I mean, uh, it would have been nice if they had taken home, you know, uh, some awards. Um, They're up up against, you know, people like Matt Anderson and, uh, and Colin James, and it, it didn't work out for them. But I don't think that matters. I, I, I see the development of where they're going. Um, and their heritage too, you know, they, their 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 father, you know, Bobby Dean Blackburn. I mean, he has a history in Toronto music that goes way back, um, you know. And, and it's really nice that they're bringing him along, like they're opening the door, you know, to people to know about what their dad did, you mm -hmm. know. Like they're not letting him be forgotten and, you know, be a thing of the past. And he's still around, you know. He can. He can still play and he can still sing and, you know, he's still out there doing it. And uh, he, he's part of that whole, their family, you know, they're, they're our version of the Neville brothers. It's, it's great to see. Um, I have to wrap this up, but I do want to ask you, before we started, you, you talked about being a student of the blues and that you're still a student. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit as, as, as after doing this for so many years, how you were still a student and what you might have learned recently as somebody trying to learn more about the blues? Well, every so often I'll hear, I have a lot of, you know, I, I have, I think, over a thousand songs on my iPod. I use an iPod still. Mm -hmm. I use it in the gym. I hook it up to my stereo setup at home, just turn it on shuffle. Every so often an old blues tune will come up. And I'll hear what, they're playing or how the singer is singing or the lyrics and it's always like there's always something to learn out of that or you know um you, you can't stop if you're a musician you you got to keep working on your craft you know and uh you know i'll i'll hear i'll hear a muddy waters tune and i'll hear something in it that i'd never heard before <laughs> You know, I mean, maybe I wasn't listening closely enough, or maybe I'd forgotten about a certain part. Um, you know, the other day I heard uh, Otis Rush, I uh, Can't Do My Homework Anymore. 
hadn't heard that song in a really long time. And I used to play it in a band. I used to play it in the James Hartley band in probably 72, you know, a long time ago. <laughs> and I heard it again the other day and I was listening to it and I was thinking like, did I play the bass line like that? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Maybe I didn't get it right. You know, maybe, you know, maybe I should go back to this song and relearn it because I'm listening to the bass now and she's, I don't remember. I must, I don't like, maybe I didn't play it correctly. I got to go and practice that song again. You know, just stuff like that. You know, um, during the pandemic, in order to keep my chops together, I made a, a playlists. Uh, I would practice every day. And I would make, I made playlists of songs to put, you know, I play them for my computer sound system to play along with. And I made songs that I would never play with any band ever. You know, Give like, me an example of that. Oh, uh, Louis Armstrong, It's a Wonderful World. Uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Nick Lowe, um, What's So Funny About Peace and Love and Understanding. You know, just Delbert McClinton stuff that I no one I play with ever gonna pull right, but but, I, but songs you love. Yeah, Bob, a couple of Bob Dylan songs like uh, "Just Like a Woman," two songs from his Infidels record. But I, anyway, and then I had one of all blues stuff. I had one of all of the Maple Blues Band songs that we were gonna eventually recorded. One of Downchild. Um, maybe one of the Swing of Blackjacks. But anyway, I would play all of these. Every day I would play a different, I had I think five or six playlists that I would play along to. And the blues songs, when I would play them, I Dust My Broom, Stormy Monday, all of these standards, you know, a lot of them were standards and some of them weren't, but, you know, about a dozen of them and they were part of my thing. I'd play along with them and I would, you know, I've been playing Dust My Broom for years and years but I'd hear a different way of playing it like oh uh, you know I kind of got off the track playing Dust My Broom you know like I don't I don't put that part in there it's a very simple part for in Dust My Broom for the bass it's mostly one note uh, every change but there's other little things that the bass player does and I go like I don't do that I should start you know I, maybe I should do that you know and uh, you know or somewhere along the line, playing it over and over and over again, I developed my way of playing it, right. which wasn't the same as the original Elmore James version. Or listening to Stormy Monday by Bobby Bland, you know, thinking that, I don't Stormy Monday. Well, <laughs> I'm not playing the same bass part as right. on the original Bobby Bland version of Stormy Monday. And then there's the T-Bone Walker version of Stormy Monday that's totally different than Bobby's. And I would be playing them both, trying to figure out, like, geez, you know, like over the years playing Starry Monday, I, I play the, you know, the climb up change and do all of that stuff. But there's stuff that that bass player, he plays every verse, he plays different. I've never done that. I always played one bass line in every verse, plus the ascending climb up part. But on the record, you know, every verse, the bass player plays something different because they probably only played it one time mm. in the studio when they recorded it. So this guy is, you know, he's just improvising every verse, what he's going to play on the bass. They probably didn't go back and say, you know, or like now they would probably, an engineer would go, well, we'll take what he did in the first verse. <laughs> and we'll, you know, we'll paste it in on every verse so the bass will be perfect 
yeah. all the way along. Well, they didn't do that in those days. They just played the song, you know. So that I would, I was, I, I was learning, you know. I, it, I'll hear a song on the radio. On one of the, I listen to the blues radio a lot. Uh, uh, all the ones that we, we were lucky here in Toronto, mm-hmm. right? We, you have Danny Marks on Saturday night. Uh, well, for instance, my Saturday starts like this. I'm getting in the driveway to drive down to St. Catharines to do my Saturday afternoon gig of playing the blues, which is different every week because it's a different guest artist every week to back up. So at noon, Calling All Blues comes on CIUT, and it's rotating hosts. It's either Sugar Brown or Brooke Blackburn or Blues Dr. Julie. So I listen to that for an hour. When I'm leaving... Joe Blows down at St. Catharines, I'm catching the second hour of Saturday Night Blues with Holger Peterson. So I catch an hour two of Holger. By the time I'm hitting Toronto, which is just about eight o'clock, I switch over to Blues FM, there's Danny Marks. You know, on Friday night, if I'm home, now they have the New Orleans show on Jazz FM with Ronnie Littlejohn, I'll listen to that. So I'm listening to all of this radio. Radio has always been a very big, important part for me in music right from the time when I was a kid under the covers with the old radio that my grandfather gave me you know looking for music right it's still a big part and I'll hear a song on the radio maybe that I've never heard before or an old song that I've forgotten about and I'll either dig it out of my collection or I'll download it you know into my computer and eventually get around to playing along with it, you know, checking it like, uh, you know, checking it out. Like uh, I've, I heard a song recently on, uh, uh, I think it was on Gumbo Kitchen. It was a New Orleans artist named Tyrone, Brother Tyrone. Nobody's ever heard of him, right? But I heard this song. I've, I've so, sort of done some research, and he's like one of those New Orleans guys that, doesn't leave New Orleans too often. He's like a soul singer. And I heard this song, and I'm listening to it probably while I'm in the kitchen making dinner or having dinner or something like that. And I'm hearing this song go by, and I'm thinking, That's, th- those are really cool changes in that song, you know. So, But I couldn't remember who it was. So I actually got in touch with Ronnie Littlejohn, and I said, Hey, you played this song. I think the guy's name was, it might have been Tyrone, but I'm not sure. You know, I can't know, I don't know the name of the song. He got back to me. He said, Brother Tyrone, not that familiar with the guy either. I go online, find the song. And I, I, I buy music. I don't stream. I, if I have to download, I'll get it from iTunes and pay for it. Uh, download it and put it up on the computer and play along with it and learn the changes to this song because it wasn't like a, a 12-bar blues or anything. It had kind of an, a different kind of chord changes in it, right? And that's how you keep active, you know? Mm-hmm. Keep learning. Keep trying stuff, you know? Write them. I was trying to write songs, you know, whether um, lyric songs with lyrics <clears throat> that I would sing uh, on, or try to sing uh, on the... the you know, small bar gigs I do. Or I'm always, you know, I'm thinking about a second record for the Maple Blues Band of instrumentals. So uh, when I write instrumentals, I, I start them on the bass. Usually when I write a song with lyrics, I'll start with the guitar. And I'm not a very good guitar player, but I can do enough to kind of 
find some chord changes to go along with some lyrics. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you can't quit. You know, you always got and you got to keep practicing. You know, I mean, I like rehearsing. I really like rehearsing, and I probably don't rehearse enough with some of the bands that I'm with. You know, if I'm the bands that I do work with, Downchild is great because we rehearse before every block of shows. I've got the Swing and Blackjacks into rehearsing now. We didn't rehearse for years with that band, you know. Um, and now the Swing of Blackjacks have regular rehearsals. And I, you know, surprised myself the other day. I've been doing some trio work with Teddy Leonard and Tyler Burgess. And I suggested the other day that maybe before the next gig we would have a rehearsal thinking they'd go, what, you crazy? Nah, we don't have time for that. You know, yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, great. I'll write a couple of songs we can rehearse. <laughs> well, Gary, thank you so much for spending more time with me. I appreciate you doing this. Mako, you're very welcome. Uh, you've I've been very good to me and very supportive of me over uh, the time that we've known each other. And I'm not really sure how many years it's been, but it's got to be over 20. Yeah, and we know that we're going to get together in another seven years. So. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. You're welcome.